The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian an investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Autumn Ness. She is director of Hawaii Organic Land Management. That is a program of Beyond Pesticides. She is based in Maui. Ms. Ness is a grassroots community organizer and has been a policy consultant to state and county legislators on agriculture, pesticide, and housing policy. Some of her specific projects include generating broad political support to converting Maui playing fields and parks to organic land management, better regulation of pesticide-heavy industrial agriculture, and chemical companies that conduct outdoor GMO crop testing, and promoting small-scale sustainable agriculture that produces food for the Hawaiian Islands. Ms. Ness was a leader in the historic Citizens Initiative to place a moratorium on GMO crops in Maui County which won at the ballot box in 2014, but lost in courts when the chemical industry sued the county of Maui. She also created the Maui Food Hub in response to the pandemic, which creates a distribution mechanism for small farmers and gives consumers access to locally grown organic food. Welcome, Autumn. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. Well, I want to just give our listeners a little bit of background of how you got to Maui. You are not born and raised there. You had been living in Japan prior to coming to Maui. Tell me how you got to Japan, what you did there, and why you moved to Maui. Okay. Long story super short, I ended up in Japan as an English teacher and really found a beautiful community there. I was also studying prior to my trip to Japan medical herbalism and family herbalism. And I, after years, I was there for about 11 years, I ended up getting married to a Japanese person into a fishing family and opened my own herbal medicine practice. Yeah, so it was my home for a long time. And then the tsunami and the earthquake tsunami nuclear meltdown that you probably have heard of happened. And we were forced after six months to leave because we were living really close to Fukushima and I got pregnant and we realized that we can't be living in the research we've been doing over that six months before I got pregnant was enough for me to know that I can't be living there because radiation was an issue. So we ended up in Maui. Wow. That must have been so frightening. Yeah, it's a whole nother show. I can't actually even believe it happened still. (laughs) It really changed me to my core and the way I look at industry and the decisions that are made about who is allowed to do what and how it affects the population. And that's kind of what made me the person I am right now, you know? Right. Well, and just the feeling that you have to uproot after being in a place that you called home, that you made your home for so many years, and then, you know, you were a refugee and you came to the Hawaiian Islands. And how easy was that for you to make that transition? Well, my husband is Japanese, so I made that my home. And I'm very aware that it was an easier choice for me. I'm also the one that was carrying the baby. 
I empathize that can't really appreciate the how difficult that decision is for somebody whose land that is. Japanese people are very connected to their ancestral and their family lands. So that's a thing that scars people for lives and generations. So, yeah, I just really saw an entire segment of that population have to deal with the permanent loss of their land, which is really their history and their identity. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you're really almost reliving some of those same feelings of loss on the Hawaiian Islands because the culture that had been well-established and the food culture, the food sovereignty, was lost when the area was colonized, essentially, and people's food systems were disrupted, and the industrial chemical companies moved in, spraying crops. It was ideal for them because the weather was so good, they could grow and spray crops all year long. How did you become involved in the food movement on Maui? Well, when I first moved to Maui, it's not an easy move for some people as a settler. When you come to Hawaii not knowing anything about its history, it can be very friendly to you or not. And in my case, because people knew why I came here, I was just really welcomed with open arms and cared for and taken care of. And I couldn't ask for a better situation coming from such a traumatic situation, pregnant without any support. This place really welcomed me with open arms. And then I found out quickly that where I'd moved to was a community that was directly downwind and sandwiched between four large outdoor GE field trial facilities for Monsanto. And when I started to ask questions about what that meant, it was almost like, you're right, like I was replaying the things that the nuclear power industry had been telling our communities in Japan for so long and the way that they responded to community concerns to valid questions about what was going on and what was in the air and are we safe and are our kids safe. It was almost like they were playing from the exact same playbook. So I probably wouldn't in a different situation move to an island in the middle of the ocean and pretend I know anything about anything and become so active in the community leading a movement like this. But because I had just come from something very similar, I almost felt obliged because I had a, a, a perspective that a lot of people don't have. And I just sought out, like, how do I be a better ally, a good ally to this community that is so cared for me in such this way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of messages were you getting when you started questioning the presence of Monsanto and their continuous spraying you raised concerns about your health. I mean, there you were, pregnant with a new baby, the most vulnerable population that there is. Mm. And of course, you're concerned about herbicide sprays. We have enough data now to say that these things cause birth defects and all kinds of developmental delays. How were your concerns received? Oh, it's you're going to laugh. It's the typical, like, the dose makes the poison. Oh, we're not using that much, and even water will kill you. So... Anything at the right amount is deadly, but we don't use enough of it to affect you. Everything has been approved by the USDA or the EPA. Oh, that birth defect that happened a couple houses down from you could have been because the mom was a smoker. Like, you can't prove that it was directly correlated to what we're doing on these fields. These are the same arguments that came to us from the nuclear power industry, right? So those were the beginnings of my spidey sense is going off, if that makes any sense. Absolutely it does. Yeah. 
So were there ways to measure pollutants in the air? You know, some communities have strips that measure particulate in the air. Did you have any way to measure what you were indeed being exposed to? No, and in the beginning, that's what the questions were. And that's actually what the moratorium that we passed on Maui asked for. It asked for disclosure that they would have to disclose what and when they were using it, and then they wouldn't be able to to continue these trial practices unless some studies could be done proving that they had no impact on people and environment. So the campaign that passed this on a ballot itself became a huge learning opportunity because people came forward from the community that had worked from Monsanto in the past, and we actually were given from somebody on the inside a spray log because of the campaign, and it was all over the news. And through that spray log, we were able to confirm that what they're doing on those fields is actually much, much more intensive spraying than even a conventional farm would be doing. So the campaign itself was based on the fact that we don't know anything about what this company, who has a long history of nefarious activities, is doing across the gulch from my house. And the campaign itself unveiled a lot of the the answers to the questions we were asking, making us know that things were as bad or worse than we had we had feared. Right. So, yeah. So the Department of Health in the state of Hawaii, have they been tracking birth defects related to that spraying? No, which is another, there's so many holes in our system. And I want to give people the benefit of the doubt that those holes are incompetence rather than intentional, but it's really hard at this point to believe that. The state of Hawaii stopped tracking birth defect data years and years ago, and in Hawaii, even when they are tracking them, a lot of defects that are discovered when the child is in utero, they're sent to the U.S., California a lot to do birth and surgery because we don't have the facilities here, so they don't end up on the Hawaii birth defect registry anyway. Oh, They're logged in California birth defect. Huh. Why did Hawaii stop counting them, though? They said that it was something about they got a, a new system update, and so they had to, I don't know, do something with the data that made it translate from the old system to the new system, and that was years ago. Wow. Well, it's so interesting, Autumn, because we do know that there are physicians here in the United States who track birth defects One gentleman, actually, who spoke at a Beyond Pesticides forum, Paul Winchester out of Indianapolis, he noticed that birth defects were higher if the mother conceived when the agricultural spraying was at its peak. So if you conceived in early spring, for example, in early summer, when those chemicals were being sprayed and there were higher amounts in their groundwater, then he was seeing a correlation with higher birth defects. So we know that something is going on. Well, here, yeah, and we have anecdotal. When I say anecdotal, I don't mean just just a story. We have non-Department of Health data from individual physicians who work in individual hospitals or clinics in these areas that report high numbers. But once it gets up to the Department of, to the actual state departments working together, that's where all the data gets lost. So... That was a big driver behind this entire movement was we need numbers, you know, and they kept saying, you can't prove that this is bad for you. So we wanted to put the burden of proof on companies like Monsanto to do so, because we have people in these individual communities, the ones that are affected are saying that the numbers are high, but 
apparently that's not enough for the state to do anything. So oh, This is criminal. So in 2014, you won the moratorium on the GMO crops in Maui County. Where are you today on this? Where do we stand? We, Monsanto sued the county of Maui, and our initiative got wrapped up there were three initiatives in the state. Three out of four counties in Hawaii passed something similar to regulate GE crop production and its related pesticide use. So in each case, the chemical industry sued the county, and all of those ended up in court. On the same day, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals actually came to Oahu and heard them all on the same day. And where we're at now is, the reading, I'm doing a really simplistic job of summarizing what the decision said, was that, yes, there are concerns. Yes, when the Plant Pest Protection Act and all these other things were written, it didn't consider the kind of activities that are happening in Hawaii, specifically testing. It's not just growing, it's the testing of these new products. That being said, in the state of Hawaii, anything to do with pesticide or agriculture is under the state jurisdiction. So the counties don't have the right or authority to regulate anything regarding pesticides or agriculture on their own. So if we want anything done to affect any of the activities, it has to be done at the state legislature. Hmm. So that's where we're at. Wow. And our state legislature is incredibly, incredibly corrupt. It's changing by the year ever so slowly, but it is very much a plantation industry mentality at the state level. So... That wasn't good news for us. Hmm. Yeah, and I remember interviewing years ago one of the researchers at the land-grant college in Hawaii saying that he was really treated terribly at the university for his questioning of the use of these chemicals. So, you know, anybody that questions is ostracized, their lives are made difficult, uh, with regard to their yep. research programs. So, yeah, this is all very interesting. We need to take a break because we are halfway through. So let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Autumn Ness. She is the Director of Hawaii Organic Land Management, a program that is part of Beyond Pesticides, and she's based on Maui. And she is a, a real hero in terms of your work, Autumn, in trying to keep the environment clean and our children safe and looking in terms of how all this connects with climate. We should probably, well, first, I want to thank you for your work. I also want to talk about some of your other projects that you've been working on. And one that really is so interesting has to do with Hawaii itself as being the most isolated of all the United States And I was, in preparing for this interview, I was doing some research online, and it was, you know, anywhere between 80 to 90% of the food that is consumed on the Hawaiian islands is imported from the mainland. That's true. That puts you in a very vulnerable place should there be a catastrophe. Talk to me a little bit about that. It's a really big deal, and it, again, is a byproduct of the plantation history of Hawaii and the, the power structure. The, the same people who control the barges that come in are the same people that continue to hold land acquired during the plantation era. Mm-hmm. That's a very huge oversimplification of what's happening. Um, but yes, it does leave us 
incredibly vulnerable. Add to that that all of our ports and most of our systems of importing those foods are really near the water. So in case of hurricane or tsunami or something like that, that's a double punch, right? We don't even have the infrastructure to import food once something once something does happen. So it's a lot about land and water access. Yeah. So we learned, all of us, have, I need to make very clear that I am just one of a lot of people that worked on that Monsanto, the GMO moratorium. I'm a, one of a lot of people who are working on agricultural reform here and better food security and food sovereignty. And we all growing up into this movement and getting smarter as we go, hopefully realize that we can only fight against the people who are not doing the right thing. I'm calling it the bad agriculture or the predatory agriculture so much that it was allowed to grow into this unmanageable and unregulated thing because the good agriculture, the decentralized agriculture was missing, right? And that's not by accident. Access to land and water was very specifically and very deliberately limited for the people. But so while we are fighting pesticide-heavy and chemical-heavy agriculture, we have to spend equal amount of time supporting and growing the kind of agriculture that we'd like to see replace it. So that's kind of dictated our work over the last few years is how do we do that? We can't just regulate pesticide use and then turn our back on the people who are going to actually grow our food, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at right now. Well, the pandemic has been devastating for everyone globally, but it has identified real problems in the food system, and it has opened up opportunities. And you, of course, have grasped onto one of those opportunities in your work in creating the Maui Food Hub. So tell yeah. me what a food hub is and what it looks like on Maui. Okay, so the real the, the reason this became, COVID became a huge eye-opener is that within a week when the shutdown started happening, because of our tourism-heavy economy, hotels and restaurants shut down, right? And the hotels and restaurants, were the ones a lot in a lot of cases buying directly from our local farmers the highest quality produce. All of a sudden, our local farmers lost their customers. And then you look that was if you look to your right, you see all these farmers with vegetables and produce that they don't have a distribution channel for them anymore. Then you look to your left and you see lines of people around the block at Costco and empty shelves at Foodland and Safeway. Everything is being bought up. And we were like, wait a minute, <laughs> the only thing missing here, the gap, is that there's no distribution chain, you know. And Maui has been talking about needing a food hub somewhere where farmers and producers and ranchers can bring what they produce and it gets aggregated and distributed as a product. We've been talking about that for years, but there's never been the financial or the political will to make that happen. So insert covid and it just, it was all over the front page, empty shelves on one hand and farmers with truckloads of tomatoes and lettuce and cucumbers with nowhere to go. So I am just one of an incredible team of people. A lot of them I had never met before the pandemic. I only met them on Zoom for months at in the beginning, putting this food hub together. Some donors that really had faith in this, we scraped together some some money and some resources. The Farmers Union was a big part of it in the very beginning. And we were quick, 
quickly able to establish a system where you go online. It's like an online farmer's market, except the items that you buy online are 100% locally made and grown and produced. And a farmer or a producer can go onto that website and kind of upload, like an Etsy or something, what they have to sell, how much they have of it, and in what amount increments. Like they have 200 one-pound items of units of tomatoes, and then you can go on and buy it. And then at the close of the store every week, each farmer gets a pick ticket, and they congratulations, we sold 150 pounds of tomatoes. And so that farmer the next day harvests the tomatoes and brings it to the hub, and we do all the other non-farming work. We weigh it out into pounds, we, at, we pack it into each customer's order bags, and then we put a set of, we have trucks that go to different areas of the island so that your order comes to your neighborhood. So it is really a hub. If you think, you know, we have farmers coming from all over the island, dropping their products off. We aggregate, pack orders, and send them back out. And it has been incredible. Um, if you think, as a consumer, I never thought about how much work it takes to not just grow a carrot, for example. That in itself is a huge undertaking. But then making that carrot a product. You know, we want them to be cleaned. We want them to be packaged. You have to get it to the grocery store. You have to invoice the grocery store. Somebody has to deliver it there. And on Maui, that's all on the farmer's back. And that's 50% or more of the, the work of, you know, between getting a seed, a carrot from seed to your plate in your house. So we wanted to take all of that work off the farmer's plate so they can now go back to their farm and figure out, okay, how do I grow more food? And it, it's, been, it's incredible. It's been incredible. Hmm. Well, what's so interesting to me, too, is that you've been able to identify funds that normally were earmarked for the Maui Visitors Bureau, and that because the tourism trade has gone down, you've got these funds now that can go to support Native and small farmers with these microgrants yeah. for infrastructure yeah. purchases. So tell me about that. How did that happen? Yeah, so this is all, it all works kind of together, right? So now that we are freeing up the farmer's time so that they can stay on the farm, basically, and not do any of these non-farming activities, we started asking people, so what would it take for you to double your food production? And a couple of them were like, well, I could open up that back half right there, but I would need an irrigation system and that costs $10,000, or I need a new tiller attachment and that's thirteen grand, or... You know, there was a little, a little thing in the, in the way of all of these farmers being able to really expand in, with huge amounts. So we took it to the county council during budget session and they agreed that we would allocate two and a half million dollars of funds to a micro grant fund for farmers. And that, yeah, make it really easy for them to apply. We also put language in there that favors Native Hawaiian, farmers of color, farmers on kuleana land, which is people that have inherited their land through generations from, like, kingdom times. You know, I'm really oversimplifying that. Excuse me. But anyway, that's what kuleana landholders mean. And female farmers. So we, we really, between the food hub servicing these small farmers and then a cash injection into whatever they need, 
we're hoping to continue these kind of activities to flip the whole food and ag power structure on its head. You know, your listeners probably know that when the USDA comes out with a grant program, small farmers don't qualify. Most of the time, there's usually a minimum sales requirement per year. A lot of things I see come across my desk, you have to show that you sold $35,000 worth of food last year. A lot of farmers don't do that, you know. For them, farming is a labor of love. And especially for indigenous farmers, Hawaiian farmers, I'm, I'm guessing it's the same on the continent. If you're farming on ancestral land, your responsibility is to farm and feed people, not to sell it. If you are able to sell some of it at a market, great. But first and foremost, you feed your community. So we have farmers in the valleys of Hawaii along these rivers that are producing pounds and pounds and pounds of starches and they're feeding everybody. But how much of that gets to market? You know, they could probably show on paper a couple thousand dollars in sales, but they're a huge part of our food security. So we wrote them in specifically into this grant process so that we can get them the tools they need. Yeah, this really is about food security and having or creating systemic change. And I just think the work you're doing is remarkable. Now, if people, I mean, you're creating really what could be an example of a national model. And I think when we're going through these hard times, you're right in having this discussion about, you know, we're fighting against one thing on one hand, but on the other hand, we want to show we want to have a visual and an image and some examples of what could be and getting yeah. behind that can really flip yeah. the system. So if people and want to learn more, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You go ahead, say what you were going to say. No, I, I just wanted to add one thing that I've really, I knew this in my brain, but I, what I'm really coming to understand in my soul and what I think the community on Maui is coming to understand is that we have spent so long subsidizing and supporting really large scale agriculture and, you know, we do a great job of, like, foodies asking where their food comes from and asking how it's grown, and that's a really good step. But the next step needs to be, how can we support you? Farming needs to be a really cooperative and supported thing. So we can't just, we can't, we can no longer be okay with only subsidizing the big guys and letting the little guys just flail on their own because they're never going to succeed. We really have to, the success of our small farmers is, you know, we depend on it. Our lives depend on it. And we can't just leave them out in the field by themselves anymore. How can we support you has to be a question that all of us as food activists ask. And agriculture, the word culture is in there for a reason. And big industrial ag is not culture-based. It's not based on land systems and history and all this stuff. So the people that are leading the charge for food system reform and agriculture reform really we have to remember that culture is in this word for a reason, you know? Exactly. We've got to close. We're out of time. But do you have a website where people can go to learn more about this? If you go to Beyond Pesticides, there is a Hawaii program page, and you can you can look there. It is in need of some updating. I do most of my work on Facebook. It's really, really public. You can find me at Autumn Rayness on Facebook. Yeah. I'll make sure to provide those links to our listeners because you are really setting the stage for a new kind of agriculture and a much healthier population. So I want to just thank you for that. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Autumn Ness, Director of Hawaii Organic Land Management, a program of Beyond Pesticides. I will provide links to learn more. Thank you for your heroic efforts on all fronts. Thank you. Aloha. 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 